As I was reflecting on uh, this text that we're going to study today from the book of Ezra, I was thinking about a story of a man who understood what the true meaning of prosperity might look like. Because today we're going to study a word, prosperity, when it comes to how the nation of Israel prospered through the prophesying of the prophets. That's a funny phrase, and I'm going to unfold that here in just a moment, but it caused me to remember a story that I'd heard once about a pastor whose name is Samuel. This was back in the early 1700s, and Samuel was a faithful pastor. He pastored a church for about 40 years. The church never really grew to be large, but he was a faithful man and faithful to his family. He was married and had eight children. And on one particular day, his house caught a flame, and his youngest son, who was not quite six, was on the second floor of that house and was near to perish, except the neighbors rallied around that home and stacked each other up on shoulders in order to rescue this little boy from harm. When Pastor Samuel was able to gather all of his family together and realized everyone was safe, he made this statement. He said, I am a rich man. Just let it burn. It's okay. His measurement of wealth was certainly not by his riches of, that you could count in the bank or the size of his home or anything else, in that moment, the only thing that really mattered was that all of his family was there together. As I said, he pastored a church for 40 years. Never really grew to be a big deal that people would talk about today, the actual church. But two of his boys went on to be a big deal. John and Charles Wesley. Matter of fact, it was John Wesley who was that near six-year-old that nearly died on the second floor of that house that God, by His providential hand and mercy, rescued him. And if any of you know John and Charles Wesley, they went on to lead an incredible revival throughout the nation of England and we now know as the Methodist Church today, birthed out of the ministry of John and Charles Wesley. That's a rich man. And he would declare his riches not based on anything that was in his account. And so I ask you today, how, how do you measure or how do you define prosperity? There's a lot said today in terms of prosperity in our country, of course. Everybody's pursuing it. I think it's probably a world phenomenon, actually, that everybody wants to get rich. And we start pursuing after wealth that we can count and usually uh, purchase things with until we suffer a loss that is greater than material gain. And that's when we begin to really gain a perspective on what prosperity actually looks like. For the nation of Israel that we've been studying, we're taking a text that's 2,500 years old. And we're looking at a, a phrase today that I want us to see where the nation prospered through prophecy. Well, it depends on how you define the word prosperity is going to determine maybe the outcomes here. The word prosperity can mean as many things as to promote, to advance, to see success. It can be seen in, throughout Scripture as well as being fruitful, in abounding, flourishing, multiplying. Maybe think of it in this phrase, Jesus came along to say that the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy, but I have come that you might have life and life more abundant. It's prosperous. But it doesn't mean that Jesus has come to make us wealthy in terms of our bank accounts, or are we wealthy in other ways? Are we prosperous in other ways? 
Maybe to understand where we're going today, I'm going to go to the end of the story and then I'm going to back up and tell the story. So in the book of Ezra today, chapter 6, verse 14, says, So the elders of the Jews built, and they prospered through prophesying, of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. And they built and finished it, it being the temple, according to the commandment of the God of Israel, and according to the command of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. These men, Haggai and Zechariah, came along to the nation of Israel at a very key time. The key time was this. Israel had been given permission already by a decree by Cyrus, the king of Persia, to go back from where they were, which was in Iraq, because they had been taken captive because of disobedience to God's word. And God allowed that to happen for a specific time of 70 years. Now God raises up a king, the king of Persia, Cyrus by name, and he now gives a decree that allows the Jews to go back to their homeland and begin to rebuild the temple. Well, when they get to Jerusalem to start rebuilding, opposition comes, and now with all this opposition, the building project actually stopped for a season of time, about 16 years. Well, during that time, it was really not a real bright time because the people began to argue among themselves over maybe this isn't the right time. Maybe the 70 year God prophesied to us, maybe that clock hasn't started ticking yet and maybe it's to come later when we actually get to build. So they had come to justify their own time slots. But meanwhile, they took the resources that God had already given for the sake of building this temple and now they took all those resources and began to use them to build their own homes. So their homes were all nicely decorated and built up fancy. However, God's house laid in ruin. So God sends two prophets to them, a prophet named Haggai and another prophet, Zechariah. And these two men come and prophesy to Israel. And what are they prophesying to them? They remind them of God's faithfulness. They take them all the way back to when God rescued them out of Egypt through the blood of the Lamb and how God has been faithful to that nation all the way through these years. And now God gave them a decree initially or gave them the ability to build a temple that the glory of God would be seen in this place. They reminded them of how they were deported away from there because of disobedience, but then how God has been so faithful that he would even raise up a Gentile king who would give you the decree to come back. So what, they, what happened, these two prophets come and proclaim the faithfulness of God, just like we just sang about. It's fascinating the songs that, that Jack and the team selected for us for today, not even knowing exactly what I was teaching and the words are specific because... They come along to remind of the faithfulness of God. But not only that, in Haggai, the prophet, he uses the phrase, Lord of hosts. We sang that from Psalm 46. Lord of hosts, meaning Lord of the armies. He used that term more than any other prophet in the Old Testament to remind Israel of that very thing, that the very God who can make mountains melt and cast them into the sea and the very one who goes before you in victory, this is the God who has called you up to rebuild and He's providentially moved you to this place. Well, now they've come and they start building again and the project starts to happen again. And from the time Haggai and Zechariah showed up to the completion of the project was about five and a half years. Well, comparing that to when they built the temple the first time, it took over seven years. So they've actually now prospered in their construction project, mobilizing this thing along once they finally got moving. But the question we still have to consider today is this word prosperity. 
when you prosper through prophesying. Now, prophesying simply means the proclamation of God's word. Think of it as, thus saith the Lord. So how do you and I prosper through prophesying or through the word of God? That's really the question that's posed to us today. Is how do we prosper through the word of God? When the word is declared and then we respond to it. And the fact is, when we hear the word of God, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Our faith is built upon the truth of God's Word, and we, by obedience of faith, take steps of faith with God. That's profit. That is prospering. It's not something you necessarily will count or can put any numeric values to, but you become rich sometimes in God's grace, because God is rich in grace. We are rich in God's mercy. We are, we are rich when it comes to God prospering in our families and how God has multiplied a church and how God takes a small seed of faith and multiplies it to maybe many, many churches over time. We've seen God do miraculous things when it comes to His faithfulness. And I think about this when we go back now into the book of Ezra. How did they prosper? David taught last week when it comes to understanding who you are as a servant of God. Well, let's consider that. Prospering through your personal identity in the Lord. There's no greater attack than probably on our identity in these days. Why? What's the motivation to attack identity? Well, if you consider the devil's attack on identity in the beginning, he went right after Adam and Eve, right out of the box. Why? Because his goal in that moment was to get them to turn against God. And so, he attacked their identity. Well, how did he do that? Because he let them know that he questioned first the word of God so God's authority in their life would be moved off center. So now they're disregarding God's word. Well, then he posed this concept that God's holding out on you and the reason God doesn't want you to eat that fruit is because God's holding back. He, he actually, if you would eat that fruit, you'll be as smart as God. So now God's holding back. So now their identity in the Lord and who God's designed them to be is going to get shaken because why? They disregarded and set aside the truth of God's word. Satan attempted the same exact strategy with Jesus. You remember in the wilderness when he came to Jesus after 40 days and 40 nights of Jesus fasting, what was the objective? He wanted Jesus to depend upon himself and disregard the fact that as the Son of God, he's come to do the will of the Father. That's what the goal was. Get him to do that. And so what's the question? Satan comes to him and poses this question. If you are the Son of God, then command these stones to be made bread. We know you're hungry. Fix the problem. If you're truly the Son of God, then cast yourself off the temple and see if the angels will come grab you. If you're truly the Son of God, and he just keeps posing this question on identity to see if he can move Jesus away from the truth of the Word and sin against the living God, which we know Jesus did not do that. Well, this is the method. So here comes nation of Israel. They're back in the business of building again. And here comes the opposition to come. And now they pose a question. In chapter 5 of verse 11, and they, they returned us an answer when these people came asking questions saying, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. That was the answer Israel gave back. 
When the opposition came and said, who commanded you to build this? Who are you and why are you here? And by the way, we want to record all of your names that are doing this. Because they were trying to intimidate them into, hey, if we record your name before the king, this will be the end of you. But instead of them being intimidated, remember they were, they were already encouraged before by Haggai the prophet. Be strong and of good courage. Don't fear. Don't be dismayed. And he reminded them of that three times. If you remember a couple weeks ago, I shared that with you. Why to be strong? Because the enemy is going to come and attack your identity. So the question, part of the question you and I have to ask today is, who are you and do you know who you are in the Lord Jesus Christ? Because as my identity and recognizing who I really am, that I am a son of God by faith and what God calls me is incredible. When you think about Jesus making this declaration, first, He esteems who He is. Because He said this, I am the true shepherd, I am the bread of life, I am the door, I am the true vine, I am the way, the truth, the life. All the I am statements, including He's the great I am. But watch what else he says. But you are. But you are what? You're the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. You're a city that's set on a hill. You're a son of God by faith. You, you are servants. You're, you're treasures. You're a chosen vessel of God. And he begins to explain all over and over, and we see these repeated throughout the New Testament of who we are in Christ, but isn't that always the attack that comes against us to move us off of center of the truth of God's Word to begin to question who we really are, identifying by our failures, our sin, seeing ourselves through the lens of someone who can't do all these things, we compare, we, I talked about that a couple of weeks ago, in comparison to others, how do we really see ourselves and measuring ourselves among ourselves? I was reminded of that a couple of weeks ago. Someone made a statement to me, and it was really good, but it, it commenting about another ministry that's just multiplying and going and blowing and just going great guns. And the term was, is they're so successful. But inside, I was thinking, well, by what metric do you measure that? I didn't say that, but I thought it. And the reason why is because I, I'm familiar with the ministry and know the struggle of the pastor and his wife and the leadership and the conflict and the, the questions surrounding the sustainability of even if we can go forward. And so on the face, it seems like success abounds, but internally, it's like, uh-oh, by what metric, then, do we measure success and prosperity? The North American church always wants to measure that by how many, how many, how many, how many? How many are in the seats? How much offering comes in the plate? How many, how many, how many? Is that really the metric of success? But if we begin to compare ourselves, even in everyday life, in terms of our, our jobs and our performances, and everything in our culture drives on this issue of how much, how many, and how much can you produce? And you are measured on that. And when we start feeling inadequate in any one of those areas, comparing to whatever we've been measured against, we feel completely inadequate when we, and we lose our identity in the Lord. These people of Israel in Israel's day here, they prospered through prophecy. How? Confidence in who they are. Oppositions come. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. 
confident of that. They prospered even in potential conflict. When the questions are posed now of who are you and what authority do you have, Ezra chapter 5, verse 9, then we asked those elders, this is the questionnaires, asked them and they spoke to them and said, who commanded you to build this temple and finish these walls? We also asked them their names to inform you that we might write the names of the men who were chief among them. And thus they returned us answers saying, we are the servants of God of heaven and earth. We're rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and completed. Look at the confidence in which they can answer. But I want you to look at the gentleness of their answer. They're secure. They don't need to blow up. They don't need to fight back. They don't need to get all boisterous about this. How they answer here matters. Because if they go big with their answer and poke a fight, so to speak, that letter now goes to the king that we have a tumult and a problem happening right now in Jerusalem. But instead, they answered simply, confidently, discreetly. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are building based on his command. Well, now, I compare that with the way Peter describes conflict and suffering and persecution and how to answer. 1 Peter chapter 3 says this, For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you're blessed. Don't be afraid of their threats or be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. What a powerful statement to consider the, the carefulness of our words and the manner of our speaking. In this, they prospered through a potential conflict by instead of elevating it, brought it down to a level here that the king now is going to receive a letter and instead of it being about a huge conflict that's breaking out, it's regarding a question and authority. Is what they're saying actually true? And this is a powerful statement because we are commanded in Scripture to seek peace and pursue it. Not to be the opposite of stirring up the troubles. And it teaches us here in 1 Peter that God's eyes are on the righteous. God sees. God hears. He knows. But His face is turned away from or against the evil. And just know that when evil comes against, and it does all the time, opposing you. Know who you are. Have the confidence of who you are in Christ Jesus. This is the, the calling on my life. The answer of my mouth and the meditation of my heart and the, the, the words of how I speak. It matters. It matters because it brings about either righteousness or unrighteousness. But watch, even sometimes if I answer something righteously and correctly, do we still suffer? 
Yes. But watch. In verse 14 it says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, meaning God allows that, even though I did it right. This person was all up in my grill and I still answered them correctly and gently and I wasn't striving with them. But did it matter? No, they still came attacking. They still assaulted. They still lied. They still cheat. They still do these things and now cause me a lot of hurt and trouble. But, he says, if you suffer for righteousness sakes, you're blessed. I prosper. Well, what do you mean I prosper? It doesn't feel like prosperity in the moment. I feel like I just got stripped. No, I prosper because God in His grace is extending it. God's extending mercy in this moment. And not only that, God is now blessing my life through so many ways I can't even begin to count by the fact that now, instead of this thing elevating and me now getting in a war and a fight, no, you seek peace and you pursue it and now all of a sudden you get to see the blessing of peace as well. It's the blessing of reconciliation. It's that blessing of not having to eat words you really wish never came out of your mouth that sometimes leave wounds that, that don't heal real easy. There's so many things that happen right here that are blessed for righteousness' sakes. And don't be afraid of their threats or be troubled, but instead sanctify the Lord in your hearts. The Lord is set apart in my life and be ready to give this defense to everyone who asks you the reason. These men are coming and asking you, who gave you the right to build? Who's commanded this? And they can give a reason of the hope that they have, and that is this. We are the servants of God of heaven and earth, and we have come to build the building He told us to build. And they could give the reason with meekness and fear. And here's what's beautiful about this. And then having a good conscience, we just answered them correctly. That's all we did here. We just answered correctly. That then when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. And that's what's going to happen here. They will get turned back. You know, we're reminded in Proverbs that a soft answer turns away wrath, but grievous words, they stir up anger. This is also a great reminder that in Proverbs 16, that when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies be at peace with him. Is that always true? Are the enemies always going to be at peace? No, sometimes you see the enemy, it seems like they prevail. So does this proverb fall apart? No, the command in Scripture is this. When a man's ways please the Lord. My focus needs to be on, I'm going to please the Lord and leave the results here to the Lord. And God will deal with this matter righteously. And if I seek peace and pursue it, and the end result is peace, that is a blessing. If the end result is I suffer persecution, I join now in Jesus in the suffering for doing the righteous thing. I'm still blessed in that with the very presence of God and the fellowship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a reward for that. There's actually a crown of glory for those who suffer persecution for Christ's sake. Prospering, even in the midst of potential conflict. There's a prosperity through God's providential hand. In Ezra chapter 5, verse 17, it says, Now therefore, if it seems good to the king, let this search be made in the king's treasure house. They claim they've got a decree from the king. Let's see if it's true. 
which is in Babylon, whether it is so that the decree was issued by King Cyrus to build this house of God at Jerusalem. Let the king send us his pleasure concerning the matter. So they've made the request. Now, if you watch all the providential words in this, it's powerful. I want you to consider through the hands of providence key people and key events that God has sown his story in your life. Amy and I had a lot of time this week and it was intentional for us to be still. Just be still. I didn't have to produce anything. I wasn't trying to accomplish anything. It took me a while to get that figured out. But, but once we got to that place, it was really sweet to look back on God's providential hand. Key people, key events. And watch God sow a story. And sometimes those were difficult moments. Sometimes they were moments where a key person rose up in your life that was an encourager that changed literally the trajectory of where you were even going. It was key events where God showed up big. It was key events that broke my heart, but I still saw the faithfulness of God. And as we were reflecting on that, I was looking at this passage and thinking, wow, look at all these providential words. They send a letter back to the king that a search would be made of records from way long ago. And what do they find? They find in the king's treasure house, in a certain city, a decree written by a specific king. Then you get to Ezra chapter 6, verse 1. Then King Darius, he issues this decree, key person, with a key decree. And a search was made in the archives in Shazam. The treasures were stored in Babylon and they found them. And at Akmetha, in the palace in the province of Media, a scroll was found and it was, uh, the record was written. Sure enough, all the key people, key places, key moments. Now the key thing. The providential hand of God has led them to this place to find the scroll. And in the first year of King Cyrus, King Cyrus did issue a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt. The place where they offered sacrifices. And let the foundations of it be firmly laid. Its height, 60 cubits. Its width, 60 cubits. It's very specific. The, the original decree from Cyrus was very specific. So there's no question about the authenticity here. In verse 4, this to have three rows of heavy stones and one row of new timber. But not only that, let the expense get paid out of the king's treasury. The incredible providential hand of all the moving parts, but God's even going to supply it through the king himself. Also, that the, let the gold and the silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out more than 70 years before. You're now 80, no, uh, 86 years removed. When all those articles of worship were taken out of the temple, well, let all that be restored and taken back to the temple that's in Jerusalem each to its place, and put it back in the house of God. That's the providential hand of God. And here's what's beautiful about this. Sometimes we hear this verse and don't understand all it means. Romans 8, 28, that we know. We know that all things work together for good. But I, watch the rest of this very carefully. Well, that gets thrown around by anybody and everybody. Oh, I know all things work together for good. But does it always? To those who love God. You know why? Because you're a person who loves the Lord is centered in the purposes of God. Those that are the called according to His purpose are, are, 
are doing the very work of God. They're living the life that God designed them to live. And here's what's happening. is These people that responded to the call of God in their life for salvation are now the children of the living God, raised up for His purposes to accomplish building His kingdom on this earth, which is what we're about. So I know this. I can know with confidence that God is working all these things together in my life for good. The things that seemingly are very difficult, the big setbacks, the things that hurt, the sorrows, the things that crush my heart and I don't think I'm going to go again. And all God somehow works all those things together for good. Key people, key events, key places. And all this stuff, been, God's working this whole thing in His incredible wisdom. And I think back on that story I shared at the beginning with Pastor Samuel. He's just a faithful man. He's just a preacher of a small church. But his faithfulness was critical. That house fire was critical. He still leaned into the Lord when he loses everything material on this earth. But he still has his family. And you listen to his boys talk about faithfulness of dad and watching dad through the years of of living for God and keep preaching the word even though their church never really got big. And you hear what you see. Then you get to see the faithfulness of God through the hands of John and Charles Wesley. And God had great plans for those men. God's providential hand was always at work. And you see all these things now working together for good. The struggle we have is when things are troublesome, we want the answer and I want to watch the good unfold now and if I can't make sense out of it and I don't see anything good out of this. And I've, I've said it. There are times when I watch hurt happen in a family and I step back and say, I do not see how anything good could ever come out of that. That is not right. And that is foolishness on my part. Because I'm dismissing the providential hand of God that He can take all of that and bring it together for good and even the most hurtful sorrows that any of us could ever face. He redeems that, often turns it into ministry, turns it into another place where, where faithfulness gets demonstrated, a place where he be, someone just becomes this amazing trophy of grace and they may be shredded to nearly nothing physical on this planet of value But you meet them and talk to them and you say, gosh, they're just so rich in the things of God. Why? They've prospered through prophecy. The word is what's so rich to them. They hold to every truth because that's really all that makes any difference. All the other stuff goes away anyway. And it's prospering through the providential hand of God. There's this prophecy then It comes with God's protection in verse 6 of Ezra 6. It says, Now therefore, Tatnai, the governor of the region beyond the river, and Shethar Boznai, these are the two trouble guys that sent the letter causing all the trouble. And your companions in Persia, who are beyond the river, I like this, keep yourselves far from there. Stay away. Stay off the project. Verse 7, Let the work of this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house of God on its site. Leave them alone. By decree of the king, leave them alone. God set some boundaries. It's interesting, you watch somebody in the book of Job, a man who loses everything material on this earth between his health, his wealth, and even his wife was not supportive of him in his darkest hours. 
His friends come along and seemingly we're supposed to be friends, but all they do is pick and poke at him even more. But what's exciting to watch in Job's life is the fact Job's life <clears throat> is to watch him embrace the Lord in all of that, but also observe carefully the Lord's protection. Satan came with a quest to destroy that man, crush him. And God set the bounds. And God allowed hardship. Oh, immense hardship. But God also set the bounds. And God flooded that man with the measure of grace that was appropriate for every hardship that came to him. Oh, Job prospered through prophecy. We prosper through God's protection. We prosper through God's provision. In verse 8, Moreover, I issue a decree as to what you shall do for the elders of these Jews for the building of this house. Let the cost be paid at the king's expense. From the taxes on the region beyond the river, this is to be given immediately to these men so that they are not hindered. And whatever they need, I love that phrase, whatever they need, young bulls, rams, lambs, burnt offerings of the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, oil, according to the request of the priests which are in Jerusalem, let it be given them day by day, without fail, that they may offer sacrifices of sweet aroma to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. And here's what the point is. By the providential hand of God, He gave them protection. Now He gives them provision that they can not only build without hindrance, but it's paid for by the king. And not only that, the offerings and the sacrifices, which was the dear thing to them, the whole purpose of building the temple was to be able to worship God through offerings and sacrifices and that prayers would be made. It was the priority of the construction project in the first place. And now God comes along and supernaturally makes this provision for them even day by day. And Paul reminds us of this in the book of Philippians, a church that sacrificially gave to the mission of a missionary. And he told them, he said, he, he was commending them. And he reminded them, my God, my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. The account of God is what we operate out of. And He supplies our needs according to His riches in glory. Does God lack any resources? Not, a, not at all. And He supplies our needs according to that. I can prosper in prophecy knowing this. Prospering in the word that my God will supply all of my needs. It doesn't mean my big long list of wants. And God will often redefine my needs because I perceive things to be needs or I need it now. And God redefines that for me and helps me to learn and to grow. They prospered through God's provision. And finally, there was a prospering even in God's purpose. And I'll just summarize this quickly without all the verse on the, on the screen. Darius made a decree to go with this. And here is the decree. You mess with these Israelites while they build, and I'll take the timber from your house, build a gallows out of it, and hang you from it. Well, all right then. He set a boundary that the purposes of God will not be stopped. And if you do, 
you won't live to tell about it. Oh, that should remind you of Romans chapter 8. If God be for us, who can be against us? You know, I, I can name a list of all the people against me. Now, wait a minute. If God be for you, who can be against you? Who can disrupt the purposes of God and just bring it all to shambles? Is there really a human on this earth that can stop the purposes of God? Of course not. Then why do we fear them? As if they can. Because we've lost somewhere along the way our identity. We missed out somewhere along the way of, of, of the God's prof, prospering us through His providential hand and recognizing that God does work things together for good. We, somehow I've missed it that God is going to protect and that God does supply my needs according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And He takes care of all that. And His purposes will not be stopped. And not only will His purposes not be stopped, but I cannot be separated from His love. And Paul opposed that question in the same text. He says, if God be for us, who can be against us? And he goes on then to ask a question, who can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus? If God Himself came to this planet, Jesus Christ the Lord, and gave Himself a ransom for us to pay our sin debt, my word, the love of the Father is revealed in Jesus Christ the Lord that He gave Himself for us. He died to pay my sin debt. He rose again, declared Himself victor over sin, death, and hell. What can separate me then from the love of God? Well, we'll make a list. Well, could it be tribulation or peril or sword or nakedness or starvation or, or enemies or principalities or powers? Or is there something that's coming against me that, oh, well, that could be the one that would separate me from God's love? And God says, no, it's not possible. You cannot be separated from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Why? Because I am in Christ Jesus and He is in me. It's not possible. If you're a Christian today, this is critical. This is how you prosper through prophecy. You prosper by knowing who you are. Your identity is secure in Christ Jesus. You know you're saved. And you know, I am a son of God by faith. And because of that, I know then that, that God, is pro His providential hand is at work in my life all the time. Key people, key events. I challenge you this week, be still at some moment. Take the earbuds out, do all that stuff. Get quiet. And in the quietness, think back through key people and key events in your life where God showed up. God redirected. God demonstrated grace. God showed you mercy. God gave you a provision. There was something big right there. Maybe it was just a word of encouragement when you were really down and didn't think you could go forward. Who was it in your life? God prospered you through prophecy. Someone came along and declared truth in your life and it perked you back up again and got you moving again. To thank the Lord and look back on God and say, God, thank you for the faithful provision you've made in my life and the protection and the bounds you have set around me. Thank you. It's great for us to go backwards and do that. And that's why these songs that we sing are so critical for us to come in on a Sunday morning and praise God. We're lifting up the name of our Lord Jesus Christ because He is faithful. And we can remember His faithfulness. And we can look forward to His purposes then being accomplished through us. And that's what it looks like then to prosper through prophecy is to see then God's provision 
and then His purposes accomplished in us. And they cannot be stopped. Because greater is He that is in you than he that is in this world. Would you bow your head with me as we consider this for a moment? To prosper through prophecy. To prosper through the Word of God. The reminder of faithfulness. The reminder today that God called us into a relationship with Him through Jesus Christ the Lord. To thank the Lord today for your salvation, the security of your identity in Christ. To say thank you right now for the Lord's provision, His protection. To be reminded right now of the providential hand of God, key people, key events, key moments, and how the word was ministered. And the purpose, the purpose that God has for you to build his kingdom, to reveal his glory, to reflect his image that God is doing a perfect work in and through your life. If right now you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, my prayer for you is that in this moment you would by faith trust Jesus Christ to save you. Call upon the name of the Lord. Ask Him to save you and He hears that prayer and receives you unto Himself. It's a prayer of faith. Confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord confessing you know you're a sinner and you need a savior you can't save yourself though you've probably tried it's confessing right now lord jesus i believe that you died for me you rose again from the grave and i confess that you are lord i turn today from my sin unto you my king father i pray that in this moment you would stir up our remembrance of how you have prospered our lives, Lord, through prophecy. Thank you for the truth of your word and thank you for people that you've placed in our lives along our path of life to speak truth, to minister grace. Thank you, Lord, for your providential hand. God, we trust you. We call upon you by faith today and trust of you for for your grace, for your mercy. We trust you, Lord, for your protection, for your provision. We believe the purposes that you have for us individually, but also for our church as a whole. And so we're asking God for your supernatural hand to minister in one community in a way that only you can accomplish. Lord, help us stir our remembrance today that we be a content and grateful people for you. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, today for you giving your life for ours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand up and continue our worship. Mm -hmm.